Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. A key indicator of whether a society is healthy or not is whether that society is just. And a key indicator of whether a society is just is how it values human life. I'm reminded of the Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Cormac McCarthy entitled The Road. It's the story of a father and son trying to survive in a post-apocalyptic world. As a result of a nuclear holocaust, all the animals, birds, fish have been destroyed. The little boy has never seen a blue sky or green grass before. Human beings roam around like packs of dogs in search of food, which means because the animals are gone, other human beings, they resort to cannibalism. And in a particularly bleak moment, the father says to his son, you must carry the fire. What did he mean by that? He meant you're to do more than just survive. To carry the fire means to value human life, not to fall into the trap of thinking it's worthless like those around you. You must carry the fire. That reminds me of another story. This one happens to be true. It's found in the Bible in Genesis 6. The world was filled with violence, the Bible says. Every thought of man was only evil continually, God said. And because of that, because of the disregard for human life, God said he was sorry he ever created man and he would blot him off the face of the earth, save one man and his family. You know his name, Noah. And after Noah and his family spent over a year on that ark, they finally emerged into the world that God had saved. And the very first command that God gave to Noah and his family in this post-flood world was this one, carry the fire. But he didn't exactly say it that way, but that's what he meant in Genesis 9, 6. The very first command to Noah and his family was this, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, God made man. Human life is so valuable, God said, that anybody who takes it presumptuously shall have his life taken. Many years afterwards, that same principle was enshrined in what we call the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, 13, God said, you shall not kill. You shall not kill. And that's where we are in our study of the Ten how to live and love in a world that has lost its way. We've come to the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. It's interesting that commandments six, seven, and eight are all three in the same form. Two short words. Commandment number six, no killing. Commandment number seven, no adultery. Commandment number eight, no theft. 
In other words, all three deal with the value of human life. Human life is so important that you're to value life, you're to value a person's marriage, and you're to value a person's possessions. This is all about the dignity, the value of human life. Today, we're going to look at the first of that triplet of commands, thou shall not kill. And today, we're going to answer three important questions to help us apply this commandment. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. It's what I thought when I began studying this message. At least this is one commandment I haven't broken. Well, two, okay? We figured that one out. But, uh, you know, I felt like I was in pretty good shape until I started studying the implications this has for all of us. There's more than one way to take a person's life, as we'll see in just a moment. So we're going to answer three key questions about this commandment. First of all, what does the commandment say? What does it say? Now, the King James Version translates the word kill, ratsa, as kill, thou shalt not kill. We learned that as children, didn't we? One of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. But any student of the Bible knows there is no absolute prohibition against killing. There is some killing that is actually sanctioned by God. For example, God gives the state, government, the power to take a life. In Genesis 9, 6, again, the first command was for capital punishment. People who said, well, that's just the Old Testament law. This came hundreds of years before the law. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. In the New Testament, that's repeated in Romans 13. Paul said, for government does not bear the sword for nothing. It is an avenger bringing wrath against those who do evil. God has given government the right to take a life. There's another form of sanction killing, and that is a just war. Sometimes war is not only allowed, it's commanded by God. Do you remember a few years ago when North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un was threatening the world with a nuclear holocaust? And I made the comment to the Washington Post that I thought the president at that time had the power, the moral authority to take out, assassinate Kim Jong-un. People went ballistic over that. In fact, I pulled up last night. When I said that, the comedian, Stephen Colbert, on his program, The Late Show, did a whole skit about me receiving a message from God to kill King Jong-un. They thought that was just, you know, unbelievable. People went ballistic. I didn't get that message directly from God. I got it from God's word. The Bible says there's a time that you need to get rid of evildoers. Deuteronomy 20 verses 10 to 18 says there is such a thing as a just war. Here's one other occurrence where killing is allowed in the Bible. Exodus 22 verse 2 says that if somebody breaks into your house at night and threatens your life, you have a right to take their life. When we talk about the sanctity of human life, it's not just life in the womb, all life is sacred. And if somebody is threatening your life or the life of a loved one, you have the right <clears throat> to take their life as well. That's why kill is not the best translation of this verse. The better translation is you shall not murder. What God is talking about is premeditated murder that comes out of anger. And that leads to a second question to answer. What does the sixth commandment cover? What's encompassed in thou shall not murder? 
three things. First of all, overt acts of murder. That's the most obvious, acts of murder. There are several kinds of murder. First of all, there's homicide. That is, taking another person's life out of anger. We'll talk about that in a moment in the first uh, commandment or in the first murder in Genesis 4 when Cain killed his brother Abel. But since that time, uh, people have been killing one another. The book of Hosea contains this lament from the Lord himself to the people of Israel. He said in Hosea 4, beginning with verse 1, the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. Notice the reason for the killing and the violence. There is no knowledge of God. Why? Thank God for a Texas legislature that is willing to say, we're going to start posting the Ten Commandments in classrooms. Why shouldn't our students see the words, thou shalt not kill? There's no knowledge of God. Hosea goes on to say, by the way, he said, because you have forgotten the law of your God, I shall forget your children. You can't separate these mass killings in schools that are so horrific from the lack of a knowledge of God. The two are tied together. Notice verse two, there is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes. Isn't that a great description of America right now? Bloodshed follows bloodshed, and the land mourns. People take life without even thinking about it now. Have you been keeping up in the news what's happened? These horrific shootings, a group of cheerleaders outside of Austin stop at an HEB grocery store. Coming out of the grocery store, one starts to get into the wrong car. She apologizes, goes and gets in her car with the other girls, and the passenger inside that car gets out and opens fire on those cheerleaders. Our little six-year-old girl and her father shot because her soccer ball went into the wrong yard. We read even on our roads here in Texas, road rage, people taking the life of another person because they got cut off. That's the land in which we live. And, uh, you know, the fact is you say, well, why is this increasing? Well, there are 330 million guns and there's nothing you're gonna do about those guns. They're in circulation. You can try to. God bless you if you can do something about it. But the fact is, it's a heart problem. We have an all-time high in mental illness in our country right now. You look at the stats, whether it is anxiety, anger, loneliness, all of these things are at an all-time high. And when people feel desperate, they do desperate things. And the Bible says uh, we have to change hearts before we can change behavior fact is homicide is rampant in our land right now, but that's not the only way to kill a person. Secondly, I think this law includes suicide, not just the taking of another life, but even the taking of our own life. You know, one of the saddest experiences I ever have as a pastor is talking to families who have lost a loved one through suicide. And when I do so, I remember an experience I had many years ago in this church 
when I was the youth minister here back in the dark ages. I remember being over in the old sanctuary and going to a funeral that Dr. Criswell conducted. It was of one of our deacons who had taken his own life. And I'll never forget what Dr. Criswell said to that family. He said, when people become ill physically, we don't damn them because they are physically ill. We show compassion toward them. But just as people get sick in their bodies, they get sick in their minds. We don't damn a person for that. We deal compassionately with them. And he said, I disagree with those who say suicide is the unpardonable sin. Any sin can be forgiven. Those who succumb to suicide have become a victim of Satan. In John 8, Jesus said, Satan is a murderer. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is the father of all lies. The person who takes his own life has succumbed to the lies of Satan who says, your life is worthless. You become a burden to other people. Your struggle will never end. You're better off dead than you are alive. No, suicide is not the unpardonable sin, but we have to be clear, it is a sin. It is wrong for you to take any life, including your own, that you didn't create. The Bible says, for we are not our own. We are the sheep of his pastures. It is he who has made us, not we ourselves. And that's why we need to say that suicide is wrong. Julie Gossick is a Christian writer who suffered through the suicides of five of her family members. She wrote, suicide is not a genetic trait, nor is it a family curse. Suicide is a sinful choice made by an individual. This statement is neither unloving nor disrespectful. It is the truth. I dearly loved my family members that committed suicide, but their, their choices were sinful and not righteous. You know, that word sin, the most common word is harmartia in Greek. It means to miss the mark. When somebody takes their own life, they have fallen short of God's standard. They have missed the mark. And we need to be compassionate, but we need to be very clear that no one has the right to take a life, including his own life. A third overt act of murder would be euthanasia, uh, sometimes referred to as assisted suicide. Did you know that nine states right now, along with the District of Columbia, have laws permitting assisted suicide? Let's be clear, we're not talking about just the cessation of treatment. That's a prayerful choice that an individual and family have to make to cease certain treatments, but this is proactively working to take another life. The problem with that is those who are affected by these laws, that sphere tends to grow as it has in the Netherlands to include people who are elderly, people who are hopeful, hopelessly infirmed, those who have become a burden to insurance companies or to the state itself. We have no right to take another life, no matter what name we put on it. Another application of overt murders, of course, is abortion. 
know, people will ask me all the time, well, where does the Bible address abortion? Well, the obvious place we talk about often is Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, in which the psalmist talks about how intricately we have been woven together in our mother's womb, how our days were written in God's book before there was one of them that we lived. But there's another passage that is equally strong about this, and that is in Exodus 21, verses 22 to 23. Listen to this law. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child, and there is injury to the child, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life. God's word says that fetus, that unborn baby is alive. In fact, it's such a valuable life that if it's lost, the penalty is another life be exchanged for that life. Have you heard, you're hearing it right now, that this concept of life begins at conception, that's a new idea. The religious people haven't believed that all the time. Christians haven't believed that. That is just something new by the right wing to take control of the government and so forth. Not at all. For hundreds of years, Christians have believed that life begins at conception, that that fetus is an actual life. Listen to the words of John Calvin. Now, some of you are gonna get all upset about me quoting John Calvin. Oh, our pastor's turned into a Calvinist, blah, blah, blah. Just because I quote from somebody doesn't mean I agree with everything they say. You know, just because somebody's not right about everything doesn't mean they're not right about anything. Calvin was right. Listen to what he wrote. The fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is almost as monstrous a crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. Life begins at conception. We have no right to take the life of the most helpless in our society, the unborn child. I think this command certainly commands or includes acts of murder itself, but it also includes attitudes that lead to murder. We talked about that at length in our series, 18 Minutes with Jesus. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about certain attitudes that lead to murder, that we need to be on guard against. Certainly, anger is one. Ralph Waldo Emerson said that anger like fire eventually dies out after leaving a path of destruction. Somebody is compared to anger to an acid that is stored in a container. It's an acid that destroys not only the container in which it's stored, it destroys the object on which it is poured. You know, I saw that vividly illustrated one time. You know how there are just some things that happen to you you never forget. <laughs> and this was the most bizarre thing. One time, my brother, sister, and I inherited rent houses. And then one of our relatives died and left each one of us a rent house. I quickly learned why my grandfather once said, if you really hate somebody and want to get even with them, give them a rent house. Because <laughs> you're always worried about keeping it filled, you know, and keeping it maintained. And, you know, I had this rent house, I had a couple living in it, and uh, I was trying to... Um, unloaded on, the, I mean, uh, sell it to them at a reasonable price. Thought we had it all worked out, had the contract signed. On a Monday morning, 
the realtor called me. She said, Robert, that contract fell through. I said, oh no, not again. She said, in all my years in the real estate business, I've never had this happen. I said, well, what happened? She said, well, that couple signed that contract on Saturday afternoon. Saturday night, the husband bludgeoned his wife to death and left her unrecognizable remains in the back bedroom. Now, if that were not creepy enough, a few days later, I received in the mail that signed contract from that husband and wife. And I thought as I looked at that contract, this couple were unified at least enough to agree on a major purchase in the afternoon. But by evening, anger had entered that relationship and caused that husband to extinguish the life of his life partner. That is the power of unresolved anger. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. The Bible says be angry, but do not sin. You need to resolve anger before nighttime comes. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Jesus said another attitude, an action that leads to murder is an insult. He goes on to say in Matthew 5, 22, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. That word translated good for nothing, it's an Aramaic word. It means somebody's mental aptitude. Literally, it means empty-headed. You dimwit. You know, when our girls were growing up, we tried to keep them from using the S word, stupid. Don't say stupid, stupid. Of course, I would undercut myself when I'd yell it out when somebody tried to cut me off, but I tried to as much as possible not have them use the word stupid because you're assaulting somebody's mental aptitude, somebody God made. And that leads to a third wrong attitude in action that leads to murder, defamation. Matthew 5:22 says, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That word fool is moros. We get moron from it. We think of mental aptitude, but it really is a character assassination, somebody who's devoid of good character. You know, in Proverbs 11:9, Solomon said, with his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. You can destroy a person by the words you strike them with. You know, just as murder robs somebody of physical life, wrong attitudes, whether it's anger, insults, defamation, they rob a person of their God-given dignity. That's where the apostle John said in 1 John 3, 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. When you insult somebody, defame them, spill out bitterness on them, you are assaulting somebody Christ made. Now, there's a third area that this command encompasses. Acts of murder, actions or attitudes that lead to murder. And third, activities short of murder. When God talks about violence, he's not just talking about murder. He's talking about any way we assault another person. I want to tell you something very interesting. If you study Genesis 6, right before God destroyed the world, do you know the reason he destroyed the world. He says himself 
in Genesis chapter five. In fact, he says it twice. In Genesis 6, 11, it says, now the earth was corrupt and was filled with violence. And then it says in verse 13, God said, the earth is filled with violence and I'm about to destroy it. Don't think this, this attitude or this idea of violence is some secondary issue. God hates violence. And we need to remember that. That's the reason he destroyed the earth. When you strike another human being, you are striking somebody who's been uh, created in the image of God. I don't know if it was this way with you growing up, but it was for me. You know, my parents went to great lengths to make sure we didn't see anything that was immoral or overtly sexual, you know certain TV programs, certain movies, you know, you just couldn't watch those. You didn't ever want to see anybody in their underwear. I mean, that was terrible. But to see somebody have their head chopped off, oh, that was nothing, you know. People gunned down, you know, in a brawl, you know, that, that was fine. Violence was okay. Sexual immorality was wrong. No, both are wrong. Both cheapen the value of life. And that's why we've got to be very careful about what we allow our children to see. I think not the only reason, but one reason, violence is so prevalent in our society is we glorify violence through television and movies and video games. We teach people that life is cheap. No, the Bible says we're not to engage in any kind of violence whatsoever. And if you're in a situation where there is violence in the home that must be dealt with. Why is, and the third question is, why is the punishment for violating this sixth commandment so severe? Let's be clear, there's no wiggle room in God's law for taking the life of another person. Exodus 21 verses 12 and 14 say, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. If a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. If God did not prescribe such a severe punishment for murder, then it would devalue human life. No, but here's another reason. God is so against violence and especially murder. I described Psalm 139 verses 13 to 16 that talk about how intricately designed we were by God. Now listen to Psalm 139 verses 17 and 18. This is worth the price of the sermon right here. This is what David is saying. How precious, God, are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you're still with me. Isn't that an amazing thought? God doesn't just think about you occasionally. He is constantly thinking about you. When you wake up, he's thinking about you. Through the day, he's thinking about you. When you go to bed, he's thinking about you. You can't count the number of times a day that God is thinking about you because he loves you. You can understand then why God reacts so violently to somebody destroying uh, that person that he loves, that person that he sent his son, Jesus, to die for. And you can understand his outrage at the first murder when Cain murdered his brother Abel. Remember the story God told Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, to bring an offering? And he told them exactly what kind of offering to bring. 
Abel obeyed God and brought the right kind of sacrifice. God accepted his offering. But Cain decided he would try to approach God in his own way. He had a better way, he thought, to approach God, a better offering to bring. In fact, that same pattern continues today. There's a phrase throughout the Bible, the way of Cain. Beware of the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? It's trying to approach God on your terms instead of God's terms. People today say, oh, I don't need to believe in Jesus. I can come to God in my own way, through another God or through my own good works. No, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Cain didn't believe that. God rejected his offering. And Cain got angry. Now, his anger really was toward God. But he knew the principle, don't pick a fight with somebody bigger than you are. So he directed his anger not toward God, but toward his brother who was made in the image of God. He killed Abel. And what did God say in verse 9? He said, what have you done? God knew the answer. He wanted to know if Cain would confess Cain didn't confess, and so God said it straight in verse 10. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground for justice. Up to that point, no human being had ever died. Can you imagine how Adam and Eve must have felt when they stumbled upon the lifeless corpse of their son, Abel? They, perhaps better than anybody, understood the sanctity and the value of human life. Why? Because life was truly a gift from God for them. God had personally breathed the breath of life into each one of them. And they understood that nobody had a right to extinguish that breath of life. Life is valuable to God. How do we apply this commandment? What are some things that we can do there's a scene in the novel, Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, in which a cutthroat murderer named Blue Duck stumbles upon a group of gamblers and he wants to enter the game. The hardened gamblers don't want to let Blue Duck in, so without warning, he pulls his gun and shoots one of them. <laughs> and another one of the gamblers says, man, life sure is cheap up here on the Canadian River. And Blue Duck says, yep and it may get even cheaper. We live in a society in which life seems to be cheap. We may think, well, we're powerless to do anything to stem the tide of devaluing human life. But let me close today by just some practical things that we can do. First of all, if you're able, give your time, give some of your money to support shelters that protect abused women and children. We have a pregnancy center that we support here at First Baptist Dallas. And what I love about it and many pregnancy centers is they not only care for the child inside the womb and make sure that child is taken care of, but also for the mother and the child once they're born. Remember, again, the sanctity of life means caring about all children, both the born and the unborn. Second, if you are struggling with thoughts of suicide. Deal with that immediately. We have a wonderful counseling center here at our church, Pathways Counseling. Pam Green and her team are able to see and to help you. If you're watching this right now, you live in another city and you're struggling with suicide, talk to somebody immediately. 
If you have nobody to talk to, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. It operates 24 hours a day. I've asked the number to be put on the screen. It's 1-800-273-8255. 800-273-8255. Thirdly, maybe you have elderly neighbors. They deserve dignity of life as well. Check in on them. Make sure they have water and food and utilities and what they need to live and survive. And fourth, and perhaps most importantly, remember murder, whether it's overt murder or attitudes that lead to murder, comes from the heart. If you've got a root of bitterness in your life toward the way a family member has treated you, maybe a friend has betrayed you, a parent has disappointed you, root that bitterness out. We are never more like Christ than when we forgive a wrong committed against us. Remember, unresolved anger metastasizes into a tumor of bitterness and can destroy everything and everyone important around us. That's why the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one of you comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Simply put, to preserve life means to carry the light and protect God's precious gift of life. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.